We now know what happened to Jacob Wetterling, but the whereabouts of dozens of other Minnesota children still remain a mystery. 19-year-old Susan Swedell disappeared from Lake Elmo 29 years ago this week. This has never been a closed case. It's been a nightmare. It was a snowy night, only about a 15-minute ride. It's just like she fell off the face of the earth. There isn't a day that goes by that, that they don't think about Susan. And... I, I think in Susan's case, somebody knows something. Welcome to the Still Missing Podcast. I'm your host, Kara Thanert. Well, first of all, I need us to call her Sue here because otherwise I feel like we're talking about a billboard instead of this real person I knew. Sue was um, outgoing with those who knew her, but also shy. Uh, She was silly and fun and creative, and we giggled and laughed so much when we were together. Uh, We were close friends in junior high and high school, and we were really quite immature then. (laughs) We knew we weren't part of the popular cliques at school, so we kind of reveled in being with our own small group of friends and just had fun being geeky and silly. Uh, We were very naive, um, didn't smoke or drink or experiment with drugs or go to parties. You know, that just wasn't our crowd, and we really had no interest or even comfort with those things. Um, I would also say, though, that despite the fact that Sue had a few really close friends and was extremely close to her sister, she was starved for affirmation and affection, uh, in particular from boys. I mean, yes, we more or less made fun of ourselves and the fact that we were unpopular, but that doesn't mean it didn't hurt. Uh, She may have changed somewhat when she went to college. I don't know. Um, We weren't in contact at that time. But I really think she needed and sought after that attention and was generally just very naturally very trusting and vulnerable to anyone who showed interest in her. Last episode, we heard from one of Susan's high school best friends, And this week, meet the second friend who made up their trio. Um, She always loved to sing. Now, this is the era of cassette tapes and recorders. um, And the three of us recorded a lot of tapes of us uh, singing and playing whatever instruments we had to hand and making up new silly lyrics as we went. Uh, Sue and I often got together, um, just the two of us, and sang along to cassette tapes of musicals like Joseph. Um, and Fiddler on the Roof, and The Sound of Music, and we pretty much knew all the words. Um, I also remember once playing piano for Sue and another friend. Um, They did a duet in junior high choir, and it had some harmony parts in it. And I just, I remember I was so amazed that she could do such a thing. And I was really impressed that she had such a strong voice and could hold her own against the harmony and that she had the confidence to do something like that. I just never could do anything like that at that age. Uh, We were also in bell choir uh, together at church. But um, aside from music, in the summer we often went to our house and went swimming in the lake together, and that would be Lake Elmo. (laughs) Uh, I think we also took an aerobics class together once over the summer. Um, And at Stillwater Senior High, we both got involved in AFS Club, 
Um, that's a, a club for exchange students and others with an interest. So we became friends with several kids in that club. And uh, during our junior year, uh, this would have been around March 1985, Stillwater Club and the Hermantown Club up near Duluth um, did an exchange where the Hermantown kids came down to Stillwater to visit our club and stay with our families. And then we went up to Hermantown and attended some classes with them and stayed with their families. Since we were in Spanish class together in Stillwater, Sue and I, I remember, went to a Spanish class in Hermantown. And if I remember correctly, we discovered that we weren't quite as advanced as we thought we were. (laughs) Um, So some of my only photos of Sue are actually from those trips. We had just a really great time. When I set out on this endeavor to make this podcast... I knew that there were, at the time at least, three pieces of information that I wanted to try to make sense of, because they seemed to imply calculation, planning of some sort, preparation, intent. The three things are as follows. The short skirt that Susan was wearing when she was seen at the gas station, the car trouble that she reported, and the mysterious entry to the Swedell residence days later. Because it seems very much that these details define Susan's case, at least publicly, and they simultaneously throw us in these wild, insane directions. I mean, if I could just come up with one reasonable theory that satisfies all of those things, but trying to construct any type of logical timeline that makes sense, it's part of what makes this case so bizarre. What is the intent of those pieces of information? Are they related the way that we think? Or what if it is the unfortunate consequences of those being the only circulated information about her disappearance for 30 years? What if each of those three things has their own logical explanation, or two out of three do, and this idea that they're all connected is just the cloak, the exact disguise that her killer has freakishly, almost staggeringly, been hiding behind all these years? It's always just felt like If we could make sense of those pieces of information, maybe we'd get somewhere. But we also had that crazy, silly streak running through just about everything we did. Uh, We used to call her Subaru, and we had a penchant for coming up with nicknames and code names for other people, too. And that could land us in trouble. <laughs> um, once uh, I remember the two of us created this little book of nicknames for our teachers and the principal at Oakland Junior High. Um, it was nothing too terrible or offensive. Like, for example, one teacher's nickname that I remember was Bowling Pen, but it was still inappropriate. Um, so we had written all these things in this little book. And then we were stupid enough to leave it behind in the cafeteria one day. Uh, So we ended up having to explain ourselves to the principal and promise not to do it again. Uh, She confiscated the book, but we really didn't get in that much trouble. So I have the feeling that she might have been more amused than anything. Um, But since we weren't usually big troublemakers... And we were incredibly melodramatic back then. We thought we had barely escaped with our lives. Um, But I I do believe we recreated that book and memorized it. So uh, we did have a little rebellious streak, too. 
Uh, and as I said, we were also in Spanish class together. Um, that actually may be how we met in eighth grade, but I don't know for sure. I remember we would use a dictionary to translate silly phrases into Spanish, which, of course, didn't exist in Spanish and made no sense. But um, it just gave us one more venue for creating our own language of inside jokes and codes. You know, we, we just love having our, our own little secrets. Um, one more memory that I have uh, is hanging out with Sue and her sister over in their duplex apartment uh, in Lake Alamo one summer day. And this huge storm went through. Um, I don't know. I never found out if it was an actual tornado or if it was straight line winds or what. Um, but we were home alone and a tree ended up falling over on the house. Um, this, this storm was just really, really loud. You know, that freight train sound that they talk about. And I remember, um, trying to shut the bathroom door because the wind was blowing the rain inside like crazy. But the wind was so strong that I couldn't get the door shut. And at that point, we were totally terrified. Uh, so once the storm mostly blew itself out, the three of us ended up just picking our way through downed trees and uh, downed power lines as well um, to get back to my house where we knew that my mother was home. And I have to say, my mother was not happy with us for walking near downed power lines. But, um, you know, just thinking back on it, I have to think that it must have contributed somewhat to Sue's deep fear of storms of all kinds. And were you friends with her at the time that she went missing? Well, I was um, an exchange student myself our senior year in high school, and then I had gone off to college and we, we had kind of drifted apart. So for the most part, we weren't really in touch at that time. What do you recall hearing about her disappearance? Well, I remember getting the call from my mom while I was at college, and I was totally in shock and so incredibly upset. Um, I'd had the opportunity to very briefly reconnect with Sue, uh, in the fall of 1987, um, it was after church one day. Um, I was home from college to present a little play with some college friends of mine um, at our home, our home church of Christ Lutheran in Lake Elmo. And as I was leaving the church, Sue was sitting in the narthex there waiting. Um, and we talked for just a few minutes, but we were able to make a really important connection. We kind of, you know, put our past behind us, um, came to some peace between us. And um, I don't know, when I heard she was missing, I was just slammed with feelings that I had failed her, um, that I should have been there for her. Um, I remember then at one point, a little later on, I don't know exactly when, uh, hearing that she was rumored to have gone back to her her house. Uh, to get some, belong some belongings or something like that after her disappearance. So basically, I latched on to that narrative in the hope that she'd turn up in her own time uh, and all would be well. But um, honestly, it, it 
didn't really feel right, but I was never prepared to accept the alternative. So I guess I just shut out that possibility. However, uh, I never actually had the real story. You know, there was no internet to look it up on or I was hearing things from my mom that she read in the paper. So as time went on, uh, it did become harder to truly believe that she would not have reached out to her mother and sister in all this time. She had been so close to her sister. So now that I've listened to the podcast and read whatever I could find online, which is not much, um, I've been forced to revise my entire understanding of what happened. Um, I've realized that this, this whole time I've been operating with incorrect and incomplete information. And yet there's still, you know, this part of me that won't let me believe or even say that she's gone. This is something that I have heard from others, that people latched on to the rumor circulating that Susan had returned home. This was something in Lake Elmo that was being focused on. And it contributed likely to the theory that she ran away. Sometimes I honestly wish that the reports of someone being in the Swedell residence just wasn't a part of this case because no personal items or affects were taken. So I do not personally believe it was Susan, but it still confuses the heck out of me because yes, I understand the concept of a criminal returning to a crime scene or in this instance, returning to the victim's home maybe to keep tabs on what's happening or reveling in the hardship that had been caused. But why return a potential piece of evidence, the red pantsuit, to the victim's home? Is this some type of elaborate hoax to stage a runaway? Why would someone do that? Over the years, um, I've actually had these recurring dreams uh, that I was looking for Sue and I would seem to see her, but I couldn't reach her to talk to her. And then it slowly evolved so that, you know, I could finally reach her and talk to her, but not about the things I really wanted to say, like, please come home. Um, And then finally I had a dream where I was able to talk to her and tell her that I'd been looking for her and that I wanted her to come back with me. Um, but she told me she couldn't, but she wouldn't say why. And throughout all these dreams, I, I was always somehow aware during the dream that they weren't real. Um, so, like, during each subsequent dream, I would try to make it real, or I remember I would tell her I wish it were real. It's really weird. Um, these dreams were pretty, pretty intense, and they would always stay with me for a day or two, but... I haven't had one now for several years, but really now I just, I just wish we knew what happened to her. I wish I could have talked to her one more time. Uh, I wish I could tell her how ironic it is that I ended up driving a Subaru or that I became a music nut too, or, you know, I saw something the other day that reminded me of her, some goofy thing we used to do. You know, I, I, I wish I knew what our friendship would be like now as mature adults instead of immature kids. And I keep on thinking how vulnerable she was, um, how easily someone could have taken advantage of her trusting nature 
her naivete, uh, her need for affection, and frankly, her lack of street smarts. And I'm not saying that in judgment because I was in the same boat. But I just, I keep thinking in that, you know, in that situation, that night, in a blizzard with undiagnosed car trouble, um, you know, coming into contact with someone who was seemingly not unknown to her, how reasonable it may have seemed to her to get into a car with him. You know, I, how I might have done the same thing in those circumstances, I don't know. At that time, I might have done the same thing. And how unfair it all is. It's just, it's just so unfair. You know, Chrissy and I, her sister, reconnected once the day after I had one of those Sioux dreams. And it was just, you know, it, it, was, it was just kind of surreal. But I think it was too much for Chrissy at the time. And, and then we, we didn't stay in touch. So this has brought us back together again. After speaking with both of Susan's high school best friends, we've gone back into her life around 1986 and a few years before that, and a little bit after that. But one time period in Susan's life that I'm especially interested in is one of the time periods I have been able to find the least about in terms of actual people who she was hanging out with. That time period is the summer and fall and winter of 1987 heading into 1988. The two things we know is that she was dating the 1988 boyfriend. Things at the time were on and off. Apparently there were other guys she may have been dating. And both he, the 1988 boyfriend, and Christine have referenced Susan attending teen dance clubs. Thanks to a listener, I was actually able to find someone who frequented those dance clubs at the exact same time. Here's what he had to say. You had attended the Bumpers Club quite frequently. Was that the case? Yeah. What do you remember about it? Um, it was a non-alcoholic 18 and up uh, dance club that was open Friday and Saturday night, I believe at first. Um, I can't remember what it, I think the, the place that it used to be was the Bald Eagle Lounge, but, um, you know, it was, it was pretty much the same crowd every weekend that went there. What do you remember um, about the crowd and the types of people and where they were from? A lot of the people that were there were from uh, surrounding uh, suburbs of, like, Ramsey County. Uh, a couple of us were from Minneapolis and whatnot. I was from, of course, the east side of St. Paul. Um, but, yeah, it was, it was, uh, was kind of like a, just a teeny bopper type of a uh, a club and situations. It was actually a lot of fun. Um, uh, you know, back then you either you went out and to the movies or whatnot at 18. You couldn't go to the regular bars. So uh, those when we were at that age, we, we went to bumpers. It was one of the only places that was open like that. I think the only other place like that that was open was uh, a club up in Bankerwood Mall. Um, called Circus Circus or Circus or something like that. Um, but Bumpers is the place we used to go. Was there usually people, was it mostly younger people that fit that age group that, like you said, like they were older than 18, but they couldn't go to the regular bars? 
Was it typically that age group, or were there a lot of older people there? No, no, there were never any older people there. The only older person I saw there was uh, the owner, I believe. His son was uh, was also an owner. His name was Dave, but uh, we used to call him Pops. He was um, he was in his I'd say late forties, early fifties, but he ran the place. Do you remember his or his son? You said his son was named Dave. Do you remember their last name by chance? I don't. I don't. I was, I was acquaintances with Dave. I wasn't good friends with him. It was just a nod or whatever, but he was the DJ. Um, and I don't remember his last name. Okay. I was just curious. And from your perspective, did you, because I don't know how, I don't know how much you know about the story, but obviously Susan Swiddell, who had frequented the bumpers clubs apparently. And it was, there's a whole theory about how she had been dating somebody who quote unquote was a stripper. Were there any types of male dancers there or anything like that going on? You know, um, a lot of us didn't, uh, we didn't say what we were doing, you know, as far as, uh, our, um, our professions were. So there could have been, you know, somebody that was stripping there, but, um, yeah, we, we didn't, they didn't have strippers there as far as like professionally or anything. Um, right. okay. but you know, there were, there were a lot of good, look, good looking dudes and, 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 and women there. So, um, it's very possible. From your experience, you knew that crowd fairly well. It sounds like, um, you said it was a similar crowd that went each week. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You had your regulars. Um, it, it was probably over half regulars there when we went. And and you never, you don't recall Susan Swiddell at all as being a part of that regular group? Her face does look familiar. Um, It wasn't like there was a whole bunch of, it wasn't like it was a huge, huge crowd. Um, But she did look familiar, but I don't think I ever, ever spoke to her. After I spoke with him, it completely brought me back into an interview I'd had with Christine. Remember this from episode five? Dancing like every, you know, just having a really good time with everybody else our age and nothing out of the ordinary. She's just being silly Sue. So everything seemed fine. It just then when we went back to bumpers, it had to have been, like I said, the time frame is when I look back at it. I mean, I was 16. I, I thought it was a longer time frame, but when I now look at it, it's, it's only like a two, two and a half week um, time frame. So things happen fast. So she's, um, when we went back to Bumpers, this is when we met and he was a very popular guy at Bumpers. His dad owned, I think he owned Bumpers. So, and she danced with him and he just, but he seemed, I don't know, to me almost, I just got a sense that he was really fast, maybe because he was more city-like or something. I mean, we were real country girls. And, you know, I mean, it's not like like almost way out or anything, but we were just really small-town girls. So anything came across a little bit faster. So he just seemed faster, and he, he has his eyes on Sue. So, so they danced a lot, and then Sue danced with somebody else. You know, her mood just spiked up, you know, I think it just all she needed was just some fun again and just, you know, and her and I were getting along really well and 
you know, I mean, you know, we had a typical teen relationship, so it was, you know, you could fight over clothes, you could be fine the next day, and then it's to the jewelry thing, and, you know, it's just some typical teenager stuff, so... Her and I were just, it was just nice to see her out of her depression and then be smiling and happy again. Something to note here is that the bleeped out name Christine says is not Dave. She says a different name. It starts with a D, but it isn't Dave. And isn't the name Dave coincidentally very close to the name Dale? Do you have hope that that they're going to be able to solve this? <laughs> Just talking with Chrissy again and talking with you know, in in my you know limited opinion, I it's funny because I actually was interviewing a clinical psychologist earlier about the concept of ambiguous loss and like what Christine has gone mm-hmm. through, and she was telling me, and I'd asked her. You know, what is, um, it was interesting because she was saying to me that the people who, when, from the families that have missing people who seem to, you know, be able to keep going in life the best are those who maintain hopeful, regardless mm-hmm. of the fact that they don't know or have an outcome. And I personally, um, I do think that there is a possibility that this case can be solved. I think that the most exciting thing about it is that the Washington County Sheriff's Office cold case unit is looking at it. And, mm-hmm. it, you know, from my opinion, it just happened to, you know, I didn't know that when I started. And I just think that there's never a better opportunity than right now. You know, obviously there's no guarantees. And I do yeah. think that, that there are people that, that haven't, that know something. And I'm yeah. hopeful that the, the Sheriff's Office, that you know, they're, doing their job. Yeah. Hope is a hard one in these scenarios, but my own self being not up within the situation, I'm very hopeful. If you know anything about what happened to Susan Swaddell or anything that could be relevant, please speak up and contact the Washington County Sheriff Department's tip line at 651-430-7850. Additionally, please help get Susan's story out there by going to facebook.com slash stillmissingpodcast and share the post with Susan's photo in it. Next time on Still Missing. With an ambiguous loss, it's a non-defined loss. There's not clarity about what's happened, if the person is going to be found or not, if they're going to come back or not. So, Thank you for listening to Still Missing. If you like what you hear, please rate and review us on iTunes. If you have suggestions for how to make the podcast better, please email us at hello at stillmissingpodcast.com.